0: Hello, and welcome everyone to Drisha's pre-Purim, Yomiyun, on One Nation Dispersed, Diaspora in the Megillah and in Jewish Thought. Megillah there depicts a Jewish people that is not only dispersed among the Persian Empire, as Haman describes them, but is also situated outside the land of Israel, in the diaspora among the nations. Today, we will learn about different Jewish attitudes towards the experience of diaspora and how they connect to Purim and the Megillah. We'll have three speakers discuss this topic from different perspectives. We'll begin with Rabbi David Silber, discussing the Megillah and its relation to diaspora, and then have shorter presentations by Dr. Malka Simkovich and Dr. Micha Gottlieb on views of diaspora in ancient and modern Jewish thought, respectively. That will be followed by a discussion among our presenters and then some time for questions and answers to be submitted via the chat. Uh, Rabbi David Silber, will begin is the founder and Dean of the Drisha Institute for Jewish Education in New York and Israel. Rabbi Silver.
1: start again, I'll be focusing on the Megillah and uh, give some sense in my view of what the Megillah, uh, how the Megillah or the context of the Megillah, how the Megillah sees the world in which we live. Now I say the world in which we live, let me begin by pointing out that the Megillah which is part of Ketuvim, which essentially the later books of the Bible, is unlike other later books such as the Book of Daniel, Daniel or Ezra and Chemia. In those books, there's a clear sense of either actually returning to the to the Holy Land from exile, or a deep connection to the Holy Land. Daniel opens up the windows and prays facing Jerusalem. The Megillah does not. Uh, accord with any of that. The Megillah ends actually with the statement that Mordecai is the second in command. He's an advocate for the Jewish people. He cares for their welfare, etc. And there's absolutely no sense in the Megillah about a return to, to, to Israel. There's no sense whatsoever. Uh, uh, beyond that, just to get a feeling for the uh, the, the context, what the Megillah was about. Uh, the, the Megillah presents a world, actually, in which there are many different states. I say a world because even though it's from Paras and Madai, the Persian king, Median Persian king, but the very beginning of the Megillah says he reigns from Hodu unto Kush. And as I pointed out in my book on the Megillah, Hodu and Hodu means splendor or light. Kush is dark. I mean, Moses married the Cushite woman, so it sort of reminds me of the verse in the Psalms, from the rising of the sun until it's setting, from light to darkness, it means the world. The sense one gets in reading the Megillah is that the king, is the king of the world. And just to try to frame it properly, It's actually interesting that the Torah begins with the story of the Garden of Eden, and then the disbursement of different peoples all over the world, different nations, different languages. And then the Torah tells us a story in chapter 11 of Breshit that um, the whole world is gathered in one place, which is the place called Shinar or Bavil. And they determined to build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens to make for themselves a name. And the point of that story is that, of course, God then disperses those people all over the world. They can't live together because they don't speak the same language. They're all speaking a different language. And the point, the, the context of the story of the Tower of Babel within its context, its biblical context, is that the Tower of Babel is presented to us as an alternative to the Garden of Eden. We're expelled from Eden. And in the Torah, there's a search for an alternative Eden. And the initial attempt to create the alternative Eden is one that the people themselves, without God's instruction, set up. Everybody's there. The whole world is there. Haaretz Safa Achat chapter 11 begins. The world speaks one language. And uh, God disperses these people all over the world. They speak a different language. They can't speak to each other. So in the Torah, the reason there are different nations, essentially, the way the Torah presents us the story, as that we don't talk the same language. With the Megillah, it's actually very interesting that the Megillah emphasizes that there's one king. His name is Rosh. He's a king over many, many states, 127 states. And each state has its own language. Kichtavam their own script and their own language. Nonetheless, despite the fact that there are 127 different languages, there's one king. So what the Megillah presents us with is the possibility that despite the different languages, there can still be one sovereign, and the sovereign is a king, a human king, a human king with many foibles. It's a book in which God is absolutely never mentioned, so he never explicitly mentioned, and the question is whether there are hints as to God's presence or not. That's a very interesting que- question, but the bottom line is that God never speaks, nor is the name of God mentioned in the entire Megillah. So We have a world. The Megillah presents us with a world. One might say, what would have happened if we never left Babylon? What would have happened if we're in Babylon? That's chapter 11. Chapter 12, the next narrative actually, and God said to Abram, pick up and leave your land and go to the place that I will show you, which of course is the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, but that's because we're dispersed from Babel. But what about if we never left Babel? What about if we stayed in Babel? And the Megillah presents us with that possibility, and more than that, what is the culture of this world? This world that the Megillah imagines is our world. What is the culture of this place, of this planet? And it strikes me that the culture is the culture not necessarily of Babel, but the culture of Mitzrayim. Anybody who studied the Megillah knows very well that the Megillah plays off a variety of biblical texts, but the main one that it plays off is the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is the story of the Jew in exile. And the Megillah references that story over and over and over again. And it's the story of Joseph it's not the story of the person Joseph. It's the story of Joseph within the world of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is a place in which, of course, God doesn't speak. God speaks in Egypt only when God is telling Moshe to leave Egypt. The process of leaving. But fundamentally, Mitzrayim is a place where there's no divine communication. And Mitzrayim has its own culture. It's a culture of mistreating the stranger. It's a culture of taking what you see. There's a whole story of Joseph, Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar. So essentially what you have in the Megillah is a a world, an imagined world in which there are two pieces to it. One is Babel, the people that want to ascend to the heavens, perhaps compete with God or declare themselves God. And the other piece of it related, but slightly different is related to the seeing oneself as God is taking whatever you wish, seeing and taking. And that's Mitzrayim. And it's interesting to note that in the Torah, the way the Book of Breshi plays out. So of course we have the Garden of Eden. We have this place where the human being is, is placed and then is banished. And then there's the search for the alternative to Eden. The alternative to Eden in the Torah is twofold it's the land of Canaan to which God directs Abraham Lechuchah, and it's the holy place within the holy place which is the second Lechuchah, which is the story of the binding of Isaac which is the sanctuary which is the temple which is the Mishkan which is the Mikdash those are the alternatives to Eden where the human being and God can interact provided that the human being behaves properly but it's a place where God can be found, where God is present. Now, what's interesting is that the story of Migdal Bavel, Tower of Babel, is chapter 11 in the book of Genesis. The next narrative is Abraham's uh, instruction to go to the, to the land. And in verse number 10, for whatever reason, he's already headed down to Egypt. So Mitzrayim and Bavel actually frame the entrance into the land of Canaan. The Megillah imagines the following. The Megillah imagines, what about if you never left Mitzrayim and you never get to the land? Now, when you read the Chumash, actually, and we look about the various rules, the laws that we have, the Chukim and Mishpatim, I think it's fair to say that primarily, they are either recalling the Exodus from Egypt, in a whole variety of ways in terms of our ritual behavior, in terms of how we treat the other, how we treat the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the outside, the marginal one. And then we have, of course, as the Ramban had noted, there are a whole set of rules that apply when you come into the land. And what the Megillah wonders is, imagines, what about a world in which we never left Egypt and a world where you never enter the land? We are in Bavo Mitzrayim. That's the world in which we live. Let me make this clear. The Megillah in no way is suggesting that this is a good thing. No way. That's not what the Megillah is about. The Megillah never suggests it's good to be in exile. Never suggests such a thing. Farthest thing from its mind. The Megillah is asking a completely different question, which is, given the reality of exile, given the reality of the world in which we live, says the Megillah, a world in which the leader is completely amoral. Amoral. Completely amoral. A world in which God is seemingly totally absent. A world in which in this amoral kingdom there exists the possibility of genuine evil which is Haman, Amalek, Agag. And of course Amalek those who have studied the Torah should know that the Amalek, among other things, plays off the first story—the story of the Garden of Eden. It's the it's it's the Nachash, it's the snake, who is both God's eternal enemy and also humanity's eternal enemy. And in the kingdom of the Amoral King, where good and bad are non-factors, in that kind of setting, hedonistic amoral setting. The snake can do very well and the Megillah poses a very simple question given this reality in this world that the Megillah imagines our world that's what the Megillah is saying in this world that we imagine then the question is how does one function as a moral human being how does one deal with this reality and how does one deal with it from the standpoint of a of a Jewish heritage, of a Jewish tradition, of a Jewish observance, of a set of Jewish values. That's what the Megillah is about. How does one deal with this reality? And I would add to this reality, and of course the Megillah doesn't I- idealize it in any manner, shape or form, because at the core of the Megillah, apart from the Amoral kingdom of Ahasuerus, we have the existence of Haman, the Agagite, the Amalekite. And anybody who reads the Megillah understands, remembers that when the Torah speaks of Amalek, it makes the point that it's always there. There's a battle of God against Amalek in every generation, Midar-Dar. And if you defeated Amalek once, you have to defeat them again. So the Megillah ends, not of course no return to the land, but it also ends with saying, we're doing well today. We have Mordechai, we have Esther, we have Mordechai, tries to tries to argue for us, tries to help us. He's important in the government, he's important in this land of Ahasuerus, but it certainly can happen again. And I would add to that, in terms of the, the way that Megillah sees the world, and this is true of Amalek, and true of Haman, the Agagite, that the MO of Amalek in the Bible is to attack the weak. In the words of the Torah, we just read it last Shabbat, parashat z'achah, v'yato'a yefiyo It attacks the stragglers, it attacks the weak ones, it attacks the ones, the marginal ones. That's what Amalek does. And in the Megillah, and Haman said to the king, there's a nation out there, Methusah, Mufarad, beinah means scattered and dispersed. And it doesn't pay to keep them alive. It's easy to defeat them. They have no state of their own. They're dispersed amongst 127 states. They don't have an army. They can't defend themselves. So it's easy to destroy them, and there's no point to keep them alive. They, they have their own rules, their own laws. So with the presence of Amalek, the ones that are marginal are always vulnerable. And, and this is a very important point for the Megillah, the Megillah makes the simple point that we came very, very close to being utterly destroyed. If not for that night, where the king could not sleep and asked for the records to be brought. And coincidentally or not coincidentally, Haman is knocking at the door and the king asked Haman what should be done. That's the turning point in the Megillah and everything is turned and everything is reversed. What if the king could have slept that night? What might have happened? How close we came and that our existence depended on one human being, on Esther, who is clearly, before she decides to make the heroic attempt to save her people despite the dangers and the vulnerabilities, we would call her and, assimilated Jew. She's an assimilated Jew. She's a marginal Jew. She doesn't even know what's happening to the Jews. And she makes the point when she's asked to intervene, I can't do this because it's against the Persian law. There's a danger. That's one argument. I haven't been called by the king. I'm not permitted to enter. It's dangerous. Then she makes another point. It's against the law. The McGill was all about so-called laws. At the end of the day, there are no real laws. It's whatever suits the king, but there are a million laws. There's no law, but there are a million laws. And I can't break the law, spoken like a good Persian. I can't break the law. And what has to convince her that in this case, you have to break the law in order to do the right thing. But we came so close. So this is the reality of, of court diaspora. I call it the world. This is the reality of the world in the Megillah. Is it a good thing? Not necessarily. Bad thing? Maybe. It is what it is. It's the reality. And what the Megillah is about is dealing with this reality. That's what the Megillah was about. And the Megillah has suggestions about how to deal with this reality. Let me stop here for a moment. If there are any comments or questions, I'll be happy to respond briefly. And if not, I'll move on to the second piece of this, which is, what does the Miguel suggest about how one lives in such a world? Does anybody have any comments or questions or in the chat? Then I'll just continue. Okay, so I will, so that's the first point about diaspora, about the, this book of diaspora is, as I have described it, this is the reality in which we live. And I I would say that this reality that the Megillah describes, I'll speak personally, is not very removed from the reality that I see in in the world in 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 which we live. I don't see this as radically different from the reality of the Megillah. There's something about the Megillah that strikes me as very real. And then the question becomes, of course, How does one respond to this reality? So let me make a couple of points about the way one responds to the reality in the Megillah. And um, the first point, of course, is the obvious one, that in a world in which God is not necessarily going to intervene on our behalf, or on anyone's behalf for that matter. it becomes more incumbent upon people to take responsibility. One might say to play God in the sense of this is our our responsibility, this is our time. And that drama plays out, of course, in the fourth chapter of the Megillah, the great chapter of the Megillah, where Mordechai has to convince Esther, who's in the palace, that she should try to intervene with the king. And um, it's interesting because at first Esther refuses to intervene on behalf of the Jews. She's happy to intervene on behalf of Mordechai. In fact, she sends clothing to Mordechai who is wearing sackcloth, he's in mourning. And Esther doesn't seem to know why he's in mourning. But he, he is in mourning. Sackcloth doesn't mean he doesn't have a pair of clothing to wear. He's, sackcloth means he's, he's distressed about something. And when Esther sends, sends him quoting, what she's saying is, listen, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. I'm the queen, I'm going to take care of you. He refuses to accept it, because it's not about him. From Mordecai's perspective, it's about his people. So then Esther is told exactly what's going on, and she has to make this decision what to do, and Mordechai makes the point in his argument with Esther, who initially refuses because she says it's too dangerous, it's against the law. And Mordechai makes the point that, listen, he says, if you don't do it, perhaps salvation will come from a different place. And you and your family will be destroyed, referring to her, probably to himself, Atu to And then he adds, of course, and who knows, he says, Grabs this is the reason that you became the queen, which is a very powerful statement and one of the central ideas of the Megillah. Namely, what he's saying is that this is your responsibility. Everybody has a task in this world, and that this may be your task. You have a particular task, and you're and an opportunity and a challenge to step up to the plate and to to do what in another situation we might have employed God to do. It's not clear to what extent they're turning towards God at all. That's a debatable question, but what's not debatable is he says to her, this is your opportunity and this is your responsibility. And here, I just wanted to reflect on this for a moment about what the Megillah uh, is saying about living in, in in such a world. The world of exile. The world of exile for the Megillah, and for most of, most of the human history, certainly Jewish history, is a very dangerous place. It's a very, for the most part, unwelcoming place. And you have to know how to deal with, with the situation. And there are two pieces to this. One is to understand the danger. And that Mordechai understands very well. He himself is described as a refugee. He was exiled from Jerusalem. And so he understands what it means to be an outsider, to be a stranger. It's called Mordechai the Jew throughout the Megillah. And he sees, he understands, he's, he, from the inside, he's dealt with harmony, deals with the, the court. He knows from that perspective and his own experience. So he's, he gives the warning. And he has to impress upon his adopted daughter, his cousin, adopted daughter, whom he had explicitly told not to reveal her Jewishness. And for many years, she has done exactly that. And in fact, it would appear for them again when no one, knows, even though she is Jewish. And this, no one knows she's Jewish. After so many years, how Jewish could she be? I would say this assimilated Jew, that the fate of the Jewish people rests upon the assimilated Jew. And the assimilated Jew heroically agrees to risk her life on behalf of her people, but she doesn't follow the instructions of Mordechai. This is actually a very important point in the Megillah. Mordechai says, go to the king and plead with the king for your people. And that's exactly what Esther does not do. She doesn't go to the king as a Jew at all. In fact, she dresses up in her royal garments and she invites the king to a party and then to another party. In other words, salvation comes in the Megillah because Esther understands how to deal with the reality. And one could make the argument, I think, that the assimilated Jew understands very well how to deal with the reality a lot better than the Jew who is kept to uh, one's own traditions, has one's own lifestyle. Esther understands the king perfectly, and she understands that appealing to his moral side, if he has a moral side, uh, is a waste of time. There is no way that's going to save the Jews. So the only way to do it is to appeal to the king's own needs, to try to make the claim ultimately that the person I'm talking about is not about, it's not about me, not about the enemy of the Jewish people, but rather it's about your enemy. She has to plant in his head the idea that Haman is actually his enemy. So you have actually a partnership in the Megillah of two people, one of whom understands what has to get done, but has no idea how to do it. That's Mordechai. He knows exactly what has to happen. He knows we have to take the risks uh, to try to uh, annul the decree to destroy all the Jews in all the provinces. And the Jews are relatively defenseless people. No state, defenseless people and he has to somehow get that decree annulled, but he doesn't know the way. And then we have the other part of it, the assimilated Jew, who understands the king, who understands the way things work, and who has a plan which will ultimately annul the decree. The plan, just in a nutshell, is, has two sides to it. The invitations to the parties, actually, have two effects in the Megillah. Effect number one is to make the king, this is, one, this is my reading. There are other, other readings as well. This is, a, this is a potential reading. One is to put in the king a question. Why is the queen inviting Haman to both parties? As if, the, as if the three of us are on the same plane, as if this Haman, my advisor, my appointee, is on my plane, that bothers him. That's from one side he's already paranoid to begin with or vulnerable. People in power want to maintain power. And this will result in a sleepless night. And one way to read the Megillah is he's actually searching for something. It's not an accident that he finds that Mordechai has saved his life. Assuming he knows, assuming he's not a fool, but assuming he's a cagey king who knows what's happening, He's looking for it. And then suddenly the enemy, Mordechai, the Jew, he calls Mordechai, Achashverosh calls him later Mordechai, the Jew, he says. Go do so to Mordechai, the Jew, who's in the gate of the king." He knows exactly who Mordechai is. So one effect of what Esther's doing is to make the king suspicious and concerned. And the other effect is to take an egomaniac like Haman and he puff him up even further. Everybody's bowing down to him. But now he says, comes home. He says, you know, I'm invited with the king and the queen. And it's not worth it to me as long as Mordechai the Jew is still alive. So they say, well, have him killed before the, how could you enjoy your meals? It's a 12 o'clock meal. Have him killed at 10 in the morning. Erect the gallows and have him killed. Now, they're taking the egomaniac and puffing him up even further. Cause after all, why is he so upset that Mordechai doesn't bow down or doesn't move or whatever? Mordecai is going to be killed with all the other Jews. He's included in the in the edict. Why is there great necessity to kill him now? It wasn't a necessity yesterday. No, now I'm a different person. I'm so important. So what Esther has done basically, she knows her people. She's she's made the, the 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 one who is paranoid more paranoid, more worried, and she's made the egomaniac more egomaniacal, and the two will coincide, conflict in chapter six. That's her plan. Now, of course, two points to note. One is you have to understand where you live very well. You have to know the people. You have to know the characters. And that's point number one. And point number two, of course, is that everything rests on this plan, which could easily not work. As Esther herself says, I'll do it. If I perish, I perish. or So understanding this world from the Megillah we live in a dangerous world and dangerous because it's run by bad people, the different types of bad people. But the bottom line whether they're truly amoral which permits mass murder or they plot the mass murder is really not the point. This is the world in which we function. It is hardly an endorsement of exile but it's saying something very different. This is our reality. At the end of the day, by the, by, the, by the thinnest of margins, we survive this particular situation. But it's going to happen again. Because the war of Amalek is in every generation. That's one piece of diaspora. And now there's another piece of diaspora that emerges from the reading of the Megillah. And that is what the Megillah emphasizes very much is the idea of dispersion. When you have your own land, your own country, you're pretty much in the same place, which creates its own set of problems, I would add, of course, as we all know. Can, can, can people live together? Can, can brothers live together in the Chumash? Can family be together? That's a very good question. Can we find unifying possibilities even amongst people who disagree with each other? That's a central question in the Torah and beyond. But the Megillah has a different situation. The people who are scattered and dispersed. The Jews in the cities that are prazim. The uh, Midrashim say it means unwalled cities, but the plain shot, in my view, is not that at all. All the cities are prazim. Prazim and mefuzarim, one word plays off the other. They're all the cities, the Shushan capital, and they're all the other places. And now the question is, in a world of 127 languages by one king, can we find the, what unifies 127 states is one powerful king, one frightening king who cares only about himself, but he'll do anything to maintain his own power and anything To disclaim any responsibility. It's always someone else's fault. It's always, the messages are always being delivered. It's not King wanting to kill the Jews, it's Haman. Haman has no power. But it's it's always somebody else. Kings often do that. They send letters, not just a They instruct others, and the others take the responsibility. Okay, but what about? a community that wants to have a moral sense, a moral community, a Jewish community. How do we create a Jewish community in exile? That's what the Megillah is very concerned with. And I'll very briefly uh, mention a few things that the Megillah suggests is essential in this reality that we live in, the reality of harasul madai the reality of this world that the writer of the Megillah imagines. How does one create a sense of community? And there are several things. One is a collective memory. What the Megillah emphasizes very much is the idea of memory. Of course, the very commandment relating to Amalek is all about memory. Um, It is, don't forget about Amalek. Don't forget about what they did in the past. But don't forget that the potential for evil is always there. Don't ever become complacent about rooting out the evil. There is an external evil, and there's within ourselves. There's an harmonic within every person, of course. There's a, there's a piece of every person that has the potential for evil. But it's not just about the person. There's also a reality of evil for the Torah. There's that snake wherever the snake is coming from. So the idea of memory, the idea of remembering the story, that's that's one piece of it, kind of a kind of collective memory. And then there is at the core of the Megillah, the taking responsibility. And the taking responsibility, it's actually very interesting that the Megillah, which is a truly amazing book, but the Megillah has something which no the book has. It has an extended discussion of how the holiday of Purim comes into being. And what's interesting is that it describes the holiday of Purim in, in terms of stages. So let me just conclude with this thought about the holiday of Purim as the Megillah describes it. The first step is in the Megillah at least, in the Masoretic, there are the Megillas, there's a whole other story. There's the Septuagint, there's the Alpha text, there's a whole discussion about that. Leave that aside. In our Megillah, the initial response, the initial observance of Purim is that not the day that we fight, but the day we rest from war. And the initial response of the Jewish people was to make that a day of mishtev v'simcha, a day of joy and of drinking. And mishtev Simcha is exactly, and there are 10 different mishtev the, uh, in the in the scroll of Esther. This is a Persian response. You won, you make a party and you're happy. It sounds like big deal begins, big parties, big parties, little parties. That's a Persian response because the Jews in Persia, the Jews in this world are largely not really very Jewish. It's in a book about assimilation. It's, not a, it's a book about loss of identity. That's always the danger of being scattered and dispersed. And then Mordechai comes along and Mordechai actually changes the nature of Purim. He adds in particular two things, Mordechai does. It's more complex than this, but what Mordechai adds is two things. First, he adds what's called Shushan Purim. The initial observance was one day on the 14th of Adar when most of the Jews rested, and Mordechai insists that there be another day of Purim as well, the 15th, when the Jews in Shushan rested from their, their, from their war. Whether Everybody observe two days or it's one in one is a good question in the Megillah. Our practice is one in one today, but the point of Mordechai is we have to include everyone. That's number one. And number two, Mordechai added something else. The Megillah speaks of sending presents to friends. Ishurei manot Ishurei And Mordechai adds, alms to the poor. And Mordechai's point is we have to include everyone. Everyone's got to be included. Of course, in the Torah, the Torah emphasizes very much that on the festivals, we should rejoice and that includes uh, giving the opportunity for others to rejoice as well. The widow, the stranger, the orphan, the, lady, the uh These are the people who don't necessarily have a place within community, within society. So we have to include them as well. So the idea what's at the center of it, the idea of of taking responsibility, which goes back to the previous point about Esther. In a place where it's not obvious that God will protect the other, that God will be our savior, our deliverer, it's even more incumbent upon people to step up to the plate despite the risk and despite the potential consequences and despite the fact that it's likely that we will not succeed, as Esther says about herself, I'll do it. When I perish, I perish. Kasher or She doesn't expect to succeed necessarily, but it's the right thing to do. So for the Megillah, it's about a practice that incorporates the other. It's about a memory. And I would add that these days on this Karim v'naasim v'chadar v'adar, I would add that in addition to this, The Megillah, in terms of remembering the story, the way we remember the story is by reading the Megillah. The Megillah itself doesn't say explicitly read this, read the story, but it is a story. It's a story that is intended to be read. Someone writes it to be read. And the idea of looking at the story, I would say studying the story, is also, in my view, a part of the Megillah. And I'll conclude with the following observation that the rules about reading the Torah. We have a, a practice, of course, to read the Torah. We read on Shabbat. We read on the holidays. We read during the week. We are reading the Torah. We are completing the Torah. Our practice is every year. In the old land of Israel, twice in seven years, we are reading the Torah. And then we have special Torah readings. We had a special Torah reading yesterday. And the special Torah readings, there are four of them. Two before Purim and two before Pesach. And what's interesting is that all the rules about reading the Torah are found in one strange place, tractate Megillah. In fact, the tractate that deals with Purim is called tractate Megillah. So the rabbinic understanding of it is that one way that we connect to the other is by studying common texts, is by learning together, either separately from each other or together with each other, And these are the ways in in, in a world in which God is seemingly not always there, seemingly very distant. How can we connect to God when God doesn't appear to be there? And one way we do this is through our study. And I'll just conclude with the following interesting practice that the Jewish people have. On the night of Purim, we read the Megillah. We actually read the Megillah twice. We read it at night. And we read it again in the daytime. At night, after we read the Megillah, we say a short prayer. And the prayer is, After we read the Megillah, we recite Kedusha. God's presence is to be found in all places. The whole world is filled with God's presence. After we read a book in which it makes it quite clear that God's presence is certainly not obvious throughout the world. But that particular prayer of the Yatah Kadosh, that Kedusha Sidra, is the context of it is the study of Torah. And the idea is that one way in which we can discover God personally and also communally is through the study of Torah. we've just engaged in the study of Torah. We just read that, have read the Megillah. So the Megillah itself is a way, that's the way the rabbinic tradition sees the Megillah. The Megillah is a prime example of of this idea of reading the Torah, which involves understanding the Torah, reading and understanding the Torah. And that's a way that Jews can connect to each other, even in exile. That is the way that historically Jews have connected to each other in exile. That was the idea of Yavna, after the destruction of the Temple. And the Torah has kept the Jews Jews throughout our history, which is largely in exile. So to summarize, I would make making two points. Of course, there's much more here, but briefly two points. Number one, that the Megillah presents us with this world. It doesn't endorse it. It's making a different point. This is the world in which we live. And given that reality, how does one deal with it? And one must understand the reality, the dangers. It's a contingent existence. There's so many dangers out there when you are dispersed and scattered, where you are alone. And this also provides the opportunity to step up to the plate in a world in which God often seems very absent. it, It devolves upon the human being to take responsibility. Two wonderful examples are Mordechai and Esther, and in their teaching us about the observance of Purim, the observance of Purim points us in certain directions, in the direction of understanding the reality, in the direction of reaching out to the other, taking responsibility, in the direction of a kind of collective memory, and finally, in the direction of learning together studying with each other and learning from each other. I'll stop at this point. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Rabbi Silber, for that insightful reading uh, of, uh, of the Megillah and its relation to diaspora. Our next presentation will be led by Dr. Malka Simcovich on diaspora in ancient Jewish thought and its relation to the Megillah. Uh, Dr. Malka Simcovich, Is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of Catholic Jewish Studies of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union. Uh, Dr. Simkovich has a handout which I'm sharing right now in the chat. Uh, It may also be shared on the screen uh, uh, depending how things go. And uh, please, Dr. Simkovich.
2: Thank you very much. Um, Thank you to the organizers, the sponsors of this event. Thank you, Rabbi Silver. I do not plan on sharing that source sheet, it's for your reference and I will allude to it and I'll tell you where to look as I speak, but it does help me to see your faces um, as I speak. So I prefer not to share my screen unless I really need to. Rabbi Silber notes that the Megillah is all about the reality of the diaspora. And so the book poses a pragmatic question about the challenges facing Jews who live there, And Rabbi Silver mentioned that once Esther understands how to deal with the reality of Galut, she appeals to the king, not on some kind of moral basis, but on his own personal needs. What I'd like to do is home in on the question of not what the Megillah intends to ask or answer, but how Jews read the Megillah in the Second Temple period. What were their concerns as they read it? How do they understand it? Many rabbinic midrashim read Esther as a critique of the diaspora, kind of a warning or a morality tale about what happens when the Jews assimilate. Your enemies try to kill you and force you to recognize who you are. Uh, There's a famous gemara that says uh, when Haman says to Mordechai, sorry, when Haman says to the the phrase "Yeshno Amachan" is interpreted as "Yeshenim Hayu." The Jews were asleep. And so Haman, through his genocidal aspirations, wakes these sleeping Jews up. They're assimilated and then they're roused. They're forced to recognize their identities as Jews. And there are many Midrashim that speak to this idea that the story is a warning of what happens in the diaspora. I'm not sure that that's how Jews in the second temple period read it. The truth is that you could read the story as presenting the same, uh, sort of the same theme, but in a totally opposite way, you could read the story as suggesting that even if you are a totally assimilated Jew, you're living the diaspora, you've no sense of your heritage, right? And also Rabbi Silver made mention of this when it comes to Esther, she doesn't know who she is at the beginning of the story or what's going on with the Jews initially. You could read the story as suggesting that even if you are as assimilated as Esther and many, many others, God will still save you no matter what. And it seems that at least some Judean Jews in the second temple period believed that diasporan Jews might read the book of Esther in such a way that it would legitimate legitimate or it would uh, justify their diasporic circumstances. There might've been a concern that a Jew in the diaspora, whether he was living in Alexandria, Antioch, Rome, or in Eastern regions, maybe what was Persia, They might have read the book and said you see we're okay of course there's a reality that we have to become accustomed to we have to learn uh, all the risks the dangers perhaps of the diaspora but ultimately at the end of the day god is not going to let us uh, be destroyed god is going to intervene through subtle ways maybe not through explicit miracles but we'll be okay at the end of the day and the truth is that the diaspora was a major problem for these jews living in the land of israel because it was so successful in the second temple period. If you look at passages about exile in the Tanakh, diaspora, galut, gola, whatever you want to call it, clearly seems to be a divine curse. In Hebrew, obviously the Tanakh doesn't use the word diaspora. That's a Greek word that's introduced by the Septuagint 12 times. The Septuagint, of course, is the translation of the Torah that's produced in the third century BCE and on. It's a collection of texts that translate the Tanakh over three or four centuries. But even in the Tanakh, this word Golad has negative connotations, of course. And so if you're a Jew living in the land of Israel in the second century BCE, first century BCE, and you're reading these texts in the Tanakh that make this very clear association between life outside the land of Israel and God's rejection, an association between the sins of the people, their abandonment of the covenantal relationship, and God ejecting the people from the land of Israel, it really is very misaligned with the reality at the time, which is diaspora was mostly a place where Jews could live peacefully. Of course, we know the stories of where things went wrong. We know the story of Hanukkah, of Purim, but most of the time the Jews were fine. We have hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Egypt alone. They Rose in the ranks politically, socially, economically, they did fine. And so, from the perspective of a Judean living at this time, you have a huge problem. Is the diaspora as they know it? Is this diaspora a reflection of God's rejection, anger, displeasure with the Jews? How to interpret this reality when so many Jews are doing so well? And in the late second century or maybe early first century BCE, A Jew, or maybe more than one Jew, produced a translation of Hebrew Esther, a Greek translation intended for Jews in the diaspora, which addressed these issues. And this text is known as Greek Esther. It's preserved in the Apocrypha, which means that it's canonical for Catholics. It's not in the the Protestant Bible. And of course, it's not in our scriptural tradition, the Jewish tradition. But in many ways, uh, Greek Esther, I, I like to use a a verb that I've made up, but it hasn't caught on. The, the verb is firmify. Firmify is not something that only the author of your does. This is a common thing you also see in later rabbinic midrash, trash. You take an older text that has already inherent value and relevance to the way that you practice your scriptural tradition. You have some connection with it, but there are some issues here. Of course, Famously, these issues are rampant in Hebrew Esther, no God, uh, no ancestral laws, very little uh, relevant allusion to other biblical texts. Of course, it has a very strong literary relationship with the story of Yosef, as Rabbi Silver mentioned, but There's little explicit allusion to earlier Israelite history. The biggest problem, of course, with Hebrew Esther is the intermarriage, the happy ending when Ahasuerus and Esther walk off into the sunset. And as I just mentioned, the seeming suggestion that God will protect the Jews no matter how assimilated they are. Um, And so, what Greek Esther does is it fromifies. There are six additions to this, uh, to the Hebrew version, and these additions form roughly what we would call a concentric chiastic structure. The first and last edition mirror each other, the second and penultimate edition uh, mirror each other, and the middle two um, are parallel as well. And I, I don't have so much time now, so I'm not going to go through each edition, but it is on your source sheet. The first and last edition are prophetic dreams that Mordechai has, which frames the story and tells you very explicitly the meaning of the story. In the first edition, Mordechai has this prophetic dream of two dueling dragons. And each dragon, of course, symbolizes a nation, either Persia or the Jews. And he has it in mind all the time, this dream. It's haunting him. It kind of reminds me of the scene in Fiddler on the Roof, where Tevye has, of course, he can cocks it, he makes it up. Uh, but you know, this meaningful dream that he's sort of carrying with him. And then the last edition of Greek Esther, um, Mordechai returns to the dream and he says, ah, I totally figured out the meaning of the dream. And uh, the dream, of course, is the conflict between him and Haman and how that played out in terms of um, the, the uh, the edict of the king to annihilate all the Jewish people. Uh, The second edition and the second to last edition are the texts of the edicts that the king issues, first to annihilate the Jews, and then not uh, an edict that repeals the first, but that permits the Jews, of course, to defend themselves. But I really suggest that you take a very close look at the middle two editions. Because these additions are prayers, they're prayers to God, um, and especially in in addition C, if you take a look at this text, uh, first of all, you'll notice it's extremely Hellenized. This is a prayer that Queen Esther um, utters to God, of course, right before she approaches the king, it's a climactic moment. There's a lot of tension built up here. And of course, a one way to really increase tension, you find this a lot in Greek uh, literature produced by Jews, uh, is to slow down the action. So you're in a crisis, what are you gonna do to increase attention? You're gonna slow down the pace of the story. And so we were suddenly like in this pause, it's like at the end of a series finale or a season finale, and that says, do be continued. And then you have to wait six months, at least this is back in the nineties, you have to wait. A year you know until season two in any case so esther utters this prayer and the prayer if you take a look at it depicts galut as a dangerous place and read this as a judean text intended for a diaspora reader she's humbling her body oh I'm, I'm not sharing the screen again i really prefer not to but you should all have access to it but if you look at the underlying text she prays to the lord uh, the god of israel and she says help me, I'm alone, I have no helper but you, danger is in my hand, ever since I was born, I heard um, in the tribe of my family that you, O Lord, took Israel out of the nations and promised uh, to ensure their survival and on and on and on. The text here really goes, um, out of its way to depict the diaspora as a dangerous place. Now, you don't see that explicitly in the Hebrew version of Esther, but of course, as Rabbi Silver mentioned, uh, very compellingly, it's there. But I think that the Judean writer of this text doesn't think it's explicit enough and worries that the true message of the book will be misinterpreted by diaspora and Jews. So I'm going to end there, um, but I look forward to our conversation.
0: All right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Simcovich, for that uh, historical uh, contextualization and and reading. Um, Our next presenter will be Dr. Micha Gottlieb and he'll present on diaspora in modern Jewish thought and its relation to the Megillah. Dr. Micha Gottlieb is associate professor of Jewish thought and philosophy at New York University. His most recent book is the Jewish reformation, Bible translation and middle-class German Judaism as spiritual enterprise. And his article, distinctiveness and diaspora in medieval and early modern Jewish thought appeared in the Oxford Handbook of the Jewish Diaspora in 2021.
3: Okay, so thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And it's really wonderful to be here. I've really been learning a lot from these, uh, these excellent presentations and I look forward to the conversation with, with all of us. Uh, so I wanna kind of shift gears a little bit and bring us up to the 19th century. Um, and in some ways the question we've been discussing to this point is how should we think about the prospects and the value of diaspora Jewish life? And I want to, what I want to do, with just we just have a few minutes here, is to give a glimpse of two opposing perspectives on this question. And they come from two 19th century Orthodox Jewish, German Jewish rabbis. And we should remember that both of these rabbis predated Zionism. So the first text that I want to look at is uh, from a little strange booklet that was published in 1881 by a German rabbi named Hillo Wexler. And let me, I'll share my screen here. Let's see if I can get this working. Oh, the host has disabled screen sharing. Um, is there a way for me to share it? Or or we could just do it based on the handouts. Said. All right. All right. So I guess I'll just do it. Uh, Just make, make, take a look at the handouts here. So this brochure uh, is, was called a word of warning to Israel to take heed of Jew baiting with reference to some extraordinary dreams. So let me give a little context about this. In 1879, we have the onset, the beginning of, Anti Semitism, where really the term anti Semitism is coined. And it was coined by a man uh, named Wilhelm Marr, uh, who published an influential pamphlet which was called The Victory of Judaism Over Germanism. And Marr also founded the League of Anti Semites. So Wexler published this brochure shortly after, after, after Marr's activity. And in this brochure, Wexler, Rabbi Wexler, delivered a stark warning to German Jews about their future. But what was interesting about this warning was he told us in this brochure that his warning was based on two dreams that he had had eight years earlier in 1873. And Wexler was uh, Gershom Sholem, who's the great historian of Jewish mysticism, famously said that Wexler can be considered the last of the German Jewish Kabbalists, right? Because Kabbalah Kabbalah really kind of declines in Germany in the 19th century. And here was someone up to the 1880s who was still a kind of practicing Kabbalist. So begin with the first dream. Uh, And so I wanna share these two dreams with you. The first dream is as follows. And this would be the source number one, if you can share, if you can uh, look along with the, Do people have access to the text? Okay, I hope so. (laughs) Um, So source number one is as follows. I saw myself, Ry says, oh, it didn't share? Okay, let me see if I can, I'll try sharing again. All right, let me see if I can share my screen. Oh, now I got it. Okay, perfect. Okay, now we're in business here. Okay, everyone can see this? Okay. So Rabbi Wexler says, I saw myself in a dream standing on a high mountain in Romania, persuading the Jews there that they should not nourish any false hopes that by the aid of Alliance Israelite or by the help of big European powers, they would achieve equality. They should rather go to Eretz Israel, settle there and take up agriculture. And then he's, and then Rabbi Wexler comments, a large number of my listeners wanted to accept my proposals in the dream. So, this is a kind of very interesting, strange dream where he, where Robbie Wexler is obviously commenting on the Jewish struggle for equal rights in Europe. Uh, the Alliance Israelite was an important organization in France that had been founded in 1860 to defend Jewish civil rights and advocate for them. And Rabbi Wexler is saying that this would not work. This is not going to to help. This is not going to be successful. And Jews should instead settle in Eretz Israel, move to Israel and take up agriculture. The second dream, move on to it it here, is, is the following. Rabbi Wexler relates, I saw in the east, in the proximity of Romania, a terrible thunderstorm. And from there, a mass of dark, threatening clouds moving around to most of the European states, but it came to Germany earlier than to Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary. I was very struck by this. Continuing dreaming, I thought this means that the Romanian spirit of hostility will make its rounds to the to other states, but will first strike root in Germany before gripping other countries. And R- Rabbi Wexler's responding to the fact that in, in 1873, there were these anti-Jewish um, riots and actions in Romania. And he's telling us, he's telling his readers that actually it's gonna be much worse in Germany. And that this is going to strike Germany first and is going to destroy uh, German Jewry. And we have to remember that this is written in 1873, which is eight years before the Chibat Sion movement. Um, which advocated again the beginning of kind of agricultural settlement in, in in Palestine, and it's 23 years before Herzl's The Jewish State. So already 23 years before Herzl, Rabbi Wexler, on the basis of these dreams, is advocating uh, saying there's no future in the diaspora, and um, and and Jews should move to uh, to, to Palestine. So. What Rabbi Wexler did though, was he wanted to get approval. He wanted to galvanize the German Jewish rabbis to support him. And so he wrote to perhaps the leading German Jewish Orthodox rabbi of the time, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch for support. But Rabbi Hirsch strongly rejected Rabbi Wexler's proposal. And here's what Rabbi Hirsch wrote in response. He said, I believe that reliance on dreams is a dangerous weapon, which may shatter both Judaism and common sense. A person who nowadays prides himself with prophetic revelation could and must be considered almost certainly either mentally sick or simply a cheater or a person who wishes for selfish reasons to take advantage of other people's superstitions." So for Rabbi Hirsch, this reliance on dreams, and a kind of sense of this, you know, mystical intuition and making policy and deciding what Judaism Judaism's position on a particular um, issue of the day, what it should be on the basis of dreams. This is a kind of completely deranged attitude that cannot be accepted. But it's not just that Rabbi Wexler, uh, that Rabbi Hirsch thought that Rabbi Wexler here was a kind of crank and, you know, a, being a bit of a fraud here. But his opposition was also based on the fact that he had a very different view of the value of diaspora ju- Judaism. And he had already expressed this in 1836 in his 19 letters of Judaism. And this was a text which is, became a kind of manifesto of German Orthodox Jews. And this is the last text I want to, sh- I want to share with you. And so this is uh, from the 16th letter of it. And I'll just read this. Rabbi Hirsch wrote, Israel's bond of unity was never land and soil, but only the collective task of the Torah, right? So the basis of Jewish unity is the Torah. It's not the land. Rabbi Hirsch continues, it is this purely spiritual nature of Israel's nationhood that makes it possible for Jews everywhere to tie themselves fully to the various states in which they live. With the distinction, perhaps, while others consider as the highest goods that the state aims to secure namely possessions and pleasures israel can always only regard these as a means to fulfilling humanity's mission right so because the land is not the basis of judaism it's not the basis of jewish unity but it's the torah jews can can live in in any state and be full citizens there and then but so for hirsch though this living in the diaspora isn't just some reality that Jews, where Jews, it's where it's possible for Jews to live. It's not just some reality that Jews can adapt to, but he thinks that it has a very important purpose for the world and for the, for the state and for the world. And here's how he puts it. He says, imagine Israel dwelling in freedom amidst the nations, striving to attain its ideals. Picture every son of Israel, a respected, influential model of righteousness and love, spreading not Judaism among the nations, that is prohibited, but pure humanitarianism. What an impetus for the education of humankind. What a source of light and strength. In the midst of people pursuing and idolizing violence, possessions and pleasures, pictured there quietly and in full view, a people who regards possessions and pleasure only as the means to practicing justice and love to the whole world a people whose minds are filled with the truth and wisdom of the Torah, who maintain only truly human rational views and perpetuate them for themselves and others through living symbolic actions, right? So for Hirsch, we have a picture of the Torah and uh, the obedience of the Torah, not just as a kind of private Jewish affair, but as having an important public role because it's a way of educating and modeling what it means to live an ethical life, a life devoted to God, right? Amidst a modern civilization, which he sees is, is one that idolizes violence, possessions, and pleasure, a very materialistic world. And, in, and what Jews say is we don't have to reject that world, but um, we can use the mater- our material well-being as a means to as a means to, uh, to, to f- f- fulfill the Torah instead of seeing it as an end in itself. So I'll just end here with a um, sense that we really have kind of two strikingly different views on diasporic existence. Here, I'll stop the share. Uh, one is Rabbi Wexler's view, which is that diaspora is a state of danger and potential genocide for Jews. While Hirsch's is that diaspora Jews existence provides the Jews with the, pot- the opportunity to thrive and to benefit Gentile society by valuing material well-being not as an end in itself, but only as a means to practicing justice and love for the sake of humanity. And it seems that we, in in some sense, we can tie both of these themes to to the Megillah. Rabbi Wexler's sense of danger of the the diaspora can be seen in Haman's genocidal plot, while Mordecai's ascension to high rank, his saving of the king, his emphasis on caring for the poor can be seen as closer to Hirsch's view. So I'll leave things there.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, for uh, giving us a snapshot of uh, 19th century thought on this topic. We're now gonna move to uh, a panel discussion um, among our presenters, and um, and that will do that for about the next uh, 35, 40 minutes. During that time, everyone is welcome to uh, submit questions for the question and answer session. Please do that by chatting me directly, not, not everyone, just to me. And we're going to engage in a few different questions building on the discussion we've had, uh, and trying to get a sense of different Jewish perspectives on diaspora, uh, throughout the history of Jewish thought. We'll start with this, topic that came up, I think in all three presentations is the question of Jewish tradition. Is it pro diaspora? Is it anti diaspora? Is it sort of not engaging that question, but, asking other questions, and uh, there's, there's uh, definitely more than one answer throughout the history of Jewish thought, but what are some of the range of views, um, both, uh, you know, both in ancient Jewish thought, medieval, contemporary, and I think we have a good good range of, uh, of areas of expertise among our panelists to speak to uh, to this issue. Um, uh, Dr. Simkovich, if you're okay, why, why don't you uh, start us off with that?
2: Yeah, uh, thank you so much, and Uh, Thank you Dr. Goodman for a wonderful presentation. The word diaspora really does not appear in Second Temple Jewish literature which is totally perplexing given the fact that most Jews were in it. Uh, It's a neologism in the Septuagint which means that we don't know of any other text before it shows up in the Septuagint which uses this word and it seems to serve the purposes of the translator. So uh, the first appearance of this is in uh, Devarim. I think it's in the Curses, which would be in Perchofchet, somewhere in the late 20s. Somebody can can uh, tell me exactly what uh, chapter and verse it is. But um, there, the prediction that the Jews who reject God's covenantal laws will be ejected from the land and a source of shame to the foreign nations. The Hayith uh, and the you will be a source of shame. Fascinatingly, the... I I take this as a Judean translation. Uh, The Judean translator who's producing the Septuagint inserts the word diaspora into this verse. And so you have a very early argument that not only is the diaspora a representation of divine rejection, but that it's also associated with shame. And that shame derives from the exposure of the suffering of the people before the foreign nations that everybody looks at these Jews who are not in their land and say, why are they dispersed? Why do they have no It's Because their God doesn't like them anymore. And so this argument, it precedes Christianity. Now, of course the church fathers take that idea and run with it, but it precedes Christianity we find in early Jewish sources essentially. Um, But the diasporan Jews, for the most part, reject the very question. In other words, they don't seem to work with a category of diaspora. It's not a word that you find in their literature. And instead, what you find is an emphasis on the universal God who takes an interest in all Jews, wherever they are and in all of humankind, wherever they are. And so take a thinker like Philo of Alexandria, who many wrongly assume he was an assimilated Jew, uh, very influenced by Stoics, Uh, maybe that part is true, but Philo uh, was an observant Jew, by which I mean, he kept the main identifying markers of Jewish practice in the ancient world Sabbath, dietary law, kashrut and circumcision, Philo goes, at length to defend the integrity of these ancestral practices, which were being accused of both Greeks and Romans and also assimilated Jews, treated these laws as irrational, barbaric, superstitious, and Philo defends the integrity of these laws and the Jewish scriptures. At the same time, Philo never uses the word um, diaspora. He never suggests that Jews have an obligation to return to the land of Israel. He underscores not only the universality of the Jewish God, but also the utility of the diaspora. This is a theme that comes up over and over, not just in Philo, but in other writings that were produced um, in the Greek-speaking diaspora. The utility of the diaspora means that Jews have a particular purpose there. Of course, it shows up again in the modern age with Rosenzweig and others. There's a reason that Jews are living among the foreign nations. And the reason is that they have an obligation not to proselytize, not to have any kind of mission as later Christians would conceive it, but to bring knowledge of the universal God that has chosen the Jews to the people. Now they could convert if they want to convert, but that's not really the concern. The concern is to bring knowledge of God sort of in the model of Shemot, the first 14 chapters of Shemot, where the Exodus uh, brings knowledge of God both to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. Philo builds on that idea and says that the Jews not only have a right a legitimate right to live in the diaspora but they have a purpose of utility and god sees a, a sort of uh, um uh, maybe even a benefit to these jews living there as long as they're pious as long as they read their scriptures they observe their ancestral laws now this is completely um i was gonna say anathema but this this totally misaligns with Jews in Judea and how they're writing about the diaspora. And I could go on and on about this, but there's a lot of literary evidence that suggests that the Jews in the land of Israel were profoundly uncomfortable with the reality of the diaspora. And so there's very early on a misalignment between how Jews in the diaspora are perceiving their diasporic circumstances and how Jews in the land of Israel are interpreting the diaspora.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Simcovich. And Dr. Gottlieb, you engaged in this question a little bit in in the sources you were looking at, the value of being in the diaspora, but maybe you can broaden the scope a little bit uh, in terms of uh, modern and even medieval Jewish thought on this question.
3: Yeah, so I I think that what you find among many thinkers, both in the medieval and the modern period, is a profound ambivalence about the diaspora. So to give a few examples, right? There's some thinkers who who emphasize that the diaspora represents this physical threat, right? This physical threat to the Jews. But the question is, what are the spiritual implications of that physical threat? So if you take a thinker like Maimonides, he says there's a very negative effect on the Jews' spiritual life, right? Because the idea, his idea is that living under physical threat and oppression causes Jews to imbue them with a sense of desperation. Right where they need to focus on their material well-being. Right, they become very um, focused on the material, right, and that dominates their attention, and that distracts Jews from cultivating a higher spiritual consciousness. Right, but there are other Jews who see the opposite. They think that physical oppression actually promotes spiritual development. Why? Because it makes one humble. It turns one towards God. Right. They see oppression as like the iron f- furnace, the kur habarzel that the Jews endured in, D- in Egypt, which purified them and prepared them to accept the Torah. So that's a kind of on the side of seeing, emphasizing the oppression, the material oppression in the diaspora. Then when you look at other Jewish thinkers, especially modern Jewish thinkers, right, they see in the diaspora not a condition of, of material oppression and suffering, but rather they begin to see the opportunity for material flourishing, with the especially with the advent of ideologies like emancipation and equal human rights. But here again, what are the spiritual implications of material flourishing? Right. And again, you have different opposing views, right? So if you take um someone like Moses Mendelssohn, you know, who's many people see as a kind of progenitor of modern Judaism, right? He thinks that greater material flourishing provides um, the opportunity for greater moral and spiritual development, and he has at least two different reasons for that. One is that because the more Jews are integrated in society and can participate in it, the more they can be enriched by the great moral and spiritual teachers of humanity, the more openness, openness they have to these great works, and that can enrich their Uh, spiritual life, right? And his second reason is because he thinks that when the Jews are more materially uh, secure, then they're less prone to engage in activities that degrade their moral character, right? Like fraud and theft. If they don't have to worry about where they're going to get their livelihood, they're less likely to be engaged in fraud and theft, But then you have, on the other side, Jewish thinkers who worried that greater material opportunities would threaten Jews' spiritual life. And perhaps the most famous example of this was the first Lubavitch Rebbe, Schneer Zalman of Liadi, who opposed Napoleon because he was worried that as Jews gained greater material well-being, they would turn away from Torah. So I think there's a kind of fundamentally ambivalent attitude.
0: All right, thank you for that. And Rabbi Silver, do you want to weigh in on this question?
1: I would say that, um, as far as the Torah is concerned, the Torah is written from the perspective of what an exile, that's for sure. The Torah book of Breshit ends with Yaakov blessing his children, talking about what may happen in the future, but they're in the land of Egypt. Uh, The book of Zvarim ends with Moshe not being able to cross over into the land, seeing the land from a distance. So the Torah in general is right from the perspective of of, of exile. Uh, The land is an aspiration. There's no question about that. But I think we have to ask ourselves the question, what is this exile about? And the exile as described in the covenant is you suffer for say three generations of being a stranger and being uh, oppressed and being enslaved. And the fourth generation returns to the land and the question then is, what is the idea of this suffering? Why must you first suffer to in order to possess the land in the future? So on one level, I think one could say that given the fact that the Torah talks about establishing your own homeland, and the Torah speaks about the various rules and regulations and laws that are in place when you enter your own land, and there is a very strong emphasis on, I would say, in the First set of the Book of the Covenant, as it's called, is a very strong sense over there on those three ideas of slavery, of not of of, of uh, not abusing people, uh, and of treating the stranger fairly. Twice it says you should love the stranger or to not oppress the stranger. Geralt Tuchatz, you know the nature of the stranger. You were strangers in the land of Egypt, so I think the idea there seems to be of slavery which is at least a moving away from, it doesn't abolish slavery, but the Torah certainly moves away from it, certainly with the Hebrew slave. So the point is, I think one can make a good case that the idea of the suffering, your own suffering is educational, and that it it teaches you what not to impose upon the other. I think that's on one level, that's in the Chumash. I think the larger question is, I think it's true what was said 100% that be going in exile for the Torah and maybe for the Bible in general is a punishment and it's a negative. The presumption is that you're not going to do that well in exile. Certainly in the Chumash, the prime example is Mitzrayim, and then we are enslaved. And the Torah is really about leaving Egypt. So uh, it doesn't, you know, Torah doesn't speak about going to a land where things are going to be you know, materially wonderful and it's a center of civilization and that kind of thing. It's not. It's not in the Chumash. But I think that question, I think from a historical standpoint, given the fact that the Jewish the Jewish, Jewish life for the most part and, and the Jewish liturgy and the Jewish collection of rules, I mean the Talmud Bavli is our primary rabbinic text, and as is Talmud Bavli. And so the question, the larger question I think is what positives can be gained from being in exile? I think that's a very interesting question and depends which exile you're in. I don't think that the, the Tosafists in uh, in France and, and Germany, or for that matter, England, felt there was much to be gained necessarily from the culture in which they were embedded. And that's certainly not true of the golden age in Spain, where clearly there is, you know, there's an obvious influence and incorporation of many of the uh, teachings and, and and, you know, the culture of the Spanish culture, whether it's philosophy, whether it's mathematics, whether it's language, grammar, et cetera, you name it. And so, you know, I think that's the larger question to what extent one can see the exile as, you know, as, as helpful actually in, in, in helping us deep, have a better understanding of our, of our own tradition and being able to incorporate other teachings from different places into our tradition. And my own personal feeling is that has happened, whether we're conscious of it or not, certainly happens. At the same time, recognizing that much of the experience of exile has been uh, very unhealthy for the Jewish people. It probably would be true for any marginal people that finds itself in a larger population, which for any number of reasons, has reasons to uh, strongly dislike them. So I think that's that's the bigger question, I think.
0: Hey, thank you all for that. And moving to our next question, which is, which is related. Um, but Dr. Simkovich mentioned the sort of classical biblical account of the Torah says about why exile happens, that it's on account of sin. You sin, you're exiled. Uh, this is uh, 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 formulated in, uh, in our uh, prayer book. as mi chata enu Galinu Because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. So how would, how would perspectives that are uh, more pro-diaspora to one degree or other, that don't say we're here because of our sins. We failed. We're going to do everything we can to merit a return. Any view other than that, how might they uh, understand or explain or or interpret uh, that biblical account of exile from the land as punishment for sin? Or you know, maybe they have other accounts, uh, other explanations for why uh, for why that happened. And maybe we'll start with uh, with Dr. Gottlieb this time.
3: Yeah. So I mean, if you talk about the idea that living in diaspora has a positive you know, effect, that there's something positive about that. Um, there's no real tension, I think, from a theological perspective between that and the idea that the exile from the land was a punishment for sin, right? Because the sense is if God is all-powerful, all all good, right, then when God punishes the people, there still, may, there still may be an important purpose of that for humanity, right? There's no kind of contradiction between that. So if, you, so if you take, for instance, Yehuda Alebi, who's very famous, uh, has a very famous approach to this, where he ex- accepts the traditional idea that the Jews were exiled from their land for idolatry. But what he says is that, that God also had a kind of secret purpose for that, which was to spread monotheism to humanity, right? So there's no contradiction there, really. Um, or if you take kind of Samson Raphael Hirsch's view, right? What he says is that originally God commanded the Jews to build a state in Palestine, um, that was based on the Torah, and the reason for that was to show how you could have a functioning polity, a functioning government, where the aim of that polity wasn't material well-being, it wasn't power, certainly wasn't, um, you know, pleasures. The aim of that polity was service of God, right? To take the material goods of the world and use them and devote them to God. And in his reading of Jewish history, what happened was that the Jews became too attached to the material aspects of politics and they began worshiping pleasure and power. So as a result, God exiled the Jews, all right? And in that, when they were deprived of the power, Jews were humbled and they had more opportunity to become devoted to God. Uh, But again, this was important, not just for the Jews, but for humanity. Because the Jews exemplified a people willing to commit themselves entirely to moral obedience to God. And that was in the kind of pre emancipation period. But when it comes to the emancipation, the period of the emancipation, Hirsch says that emancipation is both an opportunity and a risk, right? In the promise of improving Jews' material condition, that's both an opportunity and a risk. It's a risk because you know, greater material comfort can lead Jews away from ethical service to God, but it's also a way of showing an opportunity of showing how one can be fully involved in the world and devote these resources, the material resources to service of God. So again, I don't think that they, a lot of thinkers really see a kind of contradiction between what you're calling a somewhat more pro-diaspora view and the idea that the exile was a a punishment for sin.
0: Great, thank you for that. Uh, Okay, Dr. Simkovich.
2: Thank you, very interesting. And I don't know anything about this, so very fascinating. Um, I'm wondering if we can step back and just talk about language here. I'm not convinced that diaspora and Galut are the same thing. Um, And so when we talk about Jews living outside of Judea in the second temple period, is that Galut? And did they view it as Galut? I I think many of the Jews in diaspora said Galut, that's in the past. How can you compare Galut Bavel Which is built on the trauma of the destruction of the temple, right? Raising it to the ground, um, the starvation, the suffering, the forced expulsion. How can you compare the trauma of that destruction and the galut that it led to in Bavel with the diasporic lives um, that were thriving? in places like Alexandria where Jews were born into families that had lived in that city that had come by their own volition when Cyrus the Persian king said to the Jews in Babylonian exile you can go back to Judea many of them did not they chose to settle in other places and so the families who came to uh, these uh, regions such as Alexandria um, they're not I mean Alexandria by the way did not exist in 538 so let's be clear but I'm saying they're making choices to go to these places and to settle in diasporic lands. And then they do fine. I mean, they're staying in these regions for generations and generations. So, you know, obviously we cannot compare the generation or two or three that lived in the wake of this trauma, you know, in, in with those um, generations of Jews who lived, you know, in the second century BC in Alexandria. Um, so I, I, I'm wondering, and I'd like to hear from the panelists and, and their perspective, So how do we talk about diaspora in relationship with Galut? Because I'm not sure that it's the same, at least not in the uh, imaginations of those who lived in the diaspora and said, this is not an expression of God's rejection um, of the people as it's described in Devarim. So I just want to sort of present that as a question. And I'm not sure that I have the answer.
0: Any thoughts from our panelists
2: in response
3: well I, again, I think for some of the thinkers that I've been talking about what they would say is it was a rejection of the people at that point in history but as the people developed through history and you know the history is a kind of process of self education and as the kind of Jews lived in the diaspora it developed an important there was an important purpose to that right and that there was a you know so I don't necessarily see those two things as as, as contradictory,
0: hmm. but I guess there would be uh, on this account. It sounds like there still would be a difference between ancient Jews who said, "Well, the exile was previous to me, and I'm doing something different," and someone like uh, Rev Hirsch that, that was mentioned, who would say, "No, I am in. The, I am in this uh, galut, even if there are positive." Uh, some positive implications. So the question of whether you write, you read yourself into that verse or not might be a distinction at least between some ancient and modern Jews. Right, but well, but but partly is the is a question of you
3: may use the words even if you use the words exile. The question is, you know, how 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 strong is the longing to go back, or and how how strong does it? Um, You know, kind of manifest in your life because from Hirschwehr said yes, of course we're in exile, and we will be returned. But it's in some messianic future that is kind of completely out of our hands. That's kind of almost somewhat beyond history. You know, so even if you were use the words exile, there may be a certain kind of lip service that you give to it, where you say, "Of course, there's a. This is not the ideal state, but it. But we can actually do pretty well here," and. Serve an important purpose, and you know it's not like this is a, you know, just a just a, a suffering and, you know, a, a morally, you know, a decrepit time or something.
0: All right, Silver, do you have thoughts on this?
1: I think it's an excellent point. I, I totally agree that there's a difference between one who's living in a certain place for or family's been there for hundreds of years, and that initial leaving. Um, I totally agree with that. I think uh, I think that in terms of nechata enu, I think it's just wanted to take note of the fact that yes, we I mean we we say this in our prayers, say in the festivals, we would nechata enu. But I think, as a general proposition, I happen to agree with Gershom Sholem on this. That in terms of the Jewish people's thinking overall, most Jewish people Sholem would claim don't really believe that our suffering is a result of our sins. Most Jewish people would be reject the idea that 2 million Jewish children were murdered 70 years ago because we we sinned. I think find that a rather distasteful point of view. We don't know why it happens, et cetera, but we're not gonna blame, you know, it's blaming the victim. So I don't believe that, for both, in terms of what, where Jews' heads are at, if we can speak of such a thing, I think there are many things that we, basically in our gut don't really accept. That's one of them, that our suffering is solely a result of our sinfulness. Um, and the same thing is true in terms of so-called exile today. I mean, the fact of the matter is, we may, people may pray and they pray, depending where you are, but for the most part, you're living in New York City and you're talking about next year in Jerusalem. and my response would be, okay, just go book yourself a ticket. <laughs> who's, who's stopping you, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Israel is accessible. It's not that you have to way maybe there were struggles to get there or something. It's, it's, so I think one thing to take into consideration, I think, is sort of our 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 present reality, and for that matter, the reality of many hundreds of hundreds of years prior to us. And the, the point that diaspora has a totally different feel for people that grow up in it and live in it. I think is a very important point. I'll stop at this point, but I think that's a very well taken.
0: Great, so we'll move now to another question. Before before I pose that, just a reminder to everyone uh, to uh, please send me uh, your questions for the Q&A session. We have some open slots. So by all means, uh, please send them in so we'll be able to have uh, some input from the audience as well. Um, For the next question, how should the Jews of diaspora relate to political leadership and sources of power in their local uh, communities uh, or, or states? Should Jews promote a particular Jewish agenda uh, that's sort of serves their own community? Should they be loyal citizens of the state? Is there some way of balancing those? Are there other options? How, what what should the political role uh, of uh, participation in in politics uh, be of Jews in their diasporic communities? Uh, And we'll start this one with uh, Dr. Simkovich.
2: Oh boy, well, I'm not sure if the question Um, is framed as a contemporary question, but obviously I'm going to take you back 2000 years and think about this in the context of the Hellenistic world. Um, Jews in the Hellenistic world, uh, and uh, specifically with the Jews outside of Judea, seem to have had no problem with dual loyalty. We talk about this phrase like, oh no, we don't wanna be accused of dual loyalty. Uh, But if that phrase existed, I don't know, but the concept certainly existed and Jews took pride in that. Um, There's plenty of evidence which suggests that Jews, again, going back to Alexandria, took pride in the fact that they both financially supported the Jerusalem temple. Some even made pilgrimages there on the holidays. Felt an enduring connection to their ancestral homeland, and at the same time that they pers- they participated in civic life, they participated even in political um, life that was sometimes uh, a little fuzzy when it comes to religious practices. Because of course the the, the religious was public uh, at that time. So if you didn't go to festivals celebrating the gods, you would have been a bad citizen, a bad patriot. So these were live questions, they were important questions, but Jews embraced their ability to um, achieve this tightrope, this balance. The one thing that I would say is that looking back at this time, I would caution um, that the response of the host empire wasn't always positive to this optimism. So whereas the Jews in the diaspora it seemed to have been optimistic about their ability to please their kin in Judea and support their um, institutions. On the other hand, uh, also supporting their host empire, Greeks and Romans um, did did not embrace this idea. And so you have a lot of criticism, uh, especially in the first century BCE, first century CE, expressed by Roman officials that the Jews think that they can have their cake and eat it too. They think that they can fully participate in Roman life, stay home on those festivals celebrating the gods, and then they're sending all their money to Jerusalem. That's unacceptable to the Romans. And so you have Cicero in 59 BCE giving a speech at the Senate saying we have to ban the export of gold, of Jewish gold, from Egypt to Jerusalem because that gold should be going to Rome, and the Jews are diverting it. And Cicero's ideas reflected in other writings as well. There was a lot of resentment, suspicion, and questions on the part of the leaders of the host empire. Can the Jews really do what they claim to do? We don't think so, because we don't see the inherent value in their loyalty to their ancestral homeland. And so that is where I I see the the tension. That's where I would be wary. Uh, It's not a question of whether Jews can achieve this dual loyalty. I think we've seen in history that there's optimism for a reason that many Jews have remained loyal, whatever you want to call it today, Zionists. And at the same time, they participate actively in um, civil rights in the United States, whatever. There are many, many, many examples. But does that mean that they're successfully embraced by, on the one hand, their Israeli Jewish kin, and on the other hand, by their host empire? And, and there we see a lot of tension.
0: Okay, and uh, thank you for that. And, and if we move to the, let's say, the modern period in the German Jewish context, I have a feeling Jews might be a little less comfortable with this uh, idea of dual loyalty. So, Dr. Gottlieb, can you uh, speak to that?
3: Well, yeah, of course. The charge of dual loyalty was a very um, you know, a provocative uh, charge and it was something that carried political weight. But, you know, when I was thinking about this question, the way you had framed it of the, kind of the question of, is there a dichotomy between loyalty to Judaism and loyalty to the state? Um, and then Dr. Simkovich mentioned kind of American Zionism. And I was thinking of that kippah. I don't have that kippa, but, but the kippa with like the Israeli flag and the American flag. Right. That's, that's very kind of emblematic of a certain kind of consciousness um, in the sense that, you know, supporting Israel is actually completely compatible and maybe even expresses one's patriotism to America, because Israel stands for, you know, the same ideals as America, it stands for democracy, it stands for, um, you know, equal rights, it stands for all sorts of things. So but that kind of consciousness, there's something kind of very unique to the American context about, um, you know, about this kind of relation to Zionism. But the sense that loyalty to Judaism and loyalty to the state didn't contradict was very prevalent, you know, among many modern Jews. And I was thinking of kind of at least three different reasons why they saw this as a false dichotomy. Right. The first is that. Um, many modern Jews emphasize there's a halachic imperative to be loyal citizens and to be promoting the well-being of the state, right? And this is famously in Yirmiyahu, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper, right? The rabbi said, dina demachuta dina, the law of the land is land. So they saw when we're being loyal to the state, when we're supporting the state, we're fulfilling a halachic command, Right. Um, second is that what many Jews stress and especially uh, Samson Revel Hirsch, but others, they say that, well, what's the foundation of the well-being of the state? They say the foundation of the well-being of the state is the family, right When families are strong, there's less crime in the state. When families are strong, the state is more stable. right So they said that Jews concerned, with raising strong, stable families, healthy families, right? And the ways that Judaism kind of helps frame and support the family and give a structure to the family and and instill moral ideals, right? This is actually, of course, this is a halachic imperative, but this is also a a contribution to the state. So there's really kind of no contradiction there. Um, And the third is that for many modern Jews, they really emphasize that Judaism, Jewish practice, including ritual halakha, what's it really about? It's really about cultivating an ethical religious consciousness, right? And ethics, of course, begins at home, but it doesn't end there, right? So um, so if Judaism is about moving moving humanity to, in this ethical direction, this is obviously something that benefits the state as well, right? It's in the state's interest that people, that its citizens be imbued with this kind of ethical sense of ethical responsibility. So in that way, I think for many, um, modern Jews, they really see it as a kind of false dichotomy.
0: And I guess what about uh, we've heard accounts of both uh, ancient and modern Jews who, you know, really try to to lean in and, and uh, be both both a, a good Jew and a good citizen of, of uh, their country. Um, are there are there other examples? Are there, there counter examples Other uh, Jews who took the approach of you really have to choose? And here's why I'm choosing one way or the other for,
2: for you know, open I'll open this to all all the panelists. I can speak again, but I don't want to take anybody's spot. Uh, There's a very influential book um, and and it's known as Two Maccabees. There are two accounts of the rebellion of the Cheshmer against the Syrian Greeks and Two Maccabees um, is influential for Jews of up until today. And the reason is, is because it presents the conflict as a conflict between Judaism and Hellenism. It's the first work to use the word Judaism, Ismos. We don't see that word in Greek or or Hebrew literature even uh, before this, this, um, this text and framing the conflict which occurred in Judea as an imminent cultural clash between all Jews and all Greeks. This was a novel idea and oddly it um, it takes seed in the diaspora and it also undermines everything that I've been saying about the diaspora. Uh, but I do think that this argument that uh, Jews have to have total loyalty for the temple, for Jerusalem, um, and that ultimately living among the foreign nations uh, will lead to a clash. I I think that this is a minority opinion, but I don't know that we look at it that way because uh, five centuries later, when the rabbis start to talk about Hanukkah and the meaning of Hanukkah, this idea uh, that we are fighting Hellenism becomes very, very powerful. And today when we talk about Hanukkah and the meaning of, of what happened, a story like Two Maccabees helps us but I don't know that it means that that's representative of mainstream thinking. So uh, I think it's a minority view, but it's fascinating that it does, um, it is produced in Cyrene in modern day Libya and uh, references to Jerusalem, the temple are appeared dozens and dozens of times. If you compare it to a Judean work, one Maccabees, which was written in Hebrew um, in, in probably in Jerusalem, and you count how many times the temple and the land of Israel and the sanctity uh, and these themes are mentioned in one Maccabees. It's actually much, much, much fewer. So one Maccabees is focused on the heroism of the family of the Chashmonaim, but it's the diasporan text. Two Maccabees, which insists that really the story is a cultural clash between Judaism and Hellenism. It's really Jerusalem versus Athens. So, uh, so the, I, I can't explain why, but it's a diasporan work, and we have to, you know. We have to be reminded that these things are complex, and the binaries are just very limited. I mean, binaries are, by definition, you know, artificial. So that does complicate everything that I've said.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, and uh, other other perspectives of that clash. I mean, of course, <laughs> you know, of
3: course, uh, you know, Jews, ex- you know, experience with oppression, and you know, with anti-Jewish riots, and um, anti-Jewish legislation combined with you know, for many medieval, um, you know, and even modern Jews, seeing Christianity as essentially idolatry, you know, for many Jews, that meant that you had kind of have to choose at some level, and that, you know, Judaism is kind of fundamentally a rejection of the Gentile world, and you should really kind of only, con- you should concern yourself almost j- exclusively just with Jews, well, you know, well-being, and of course, that's been a you know, has been an important strain and continues today. And in some ways got a, a a, you know, received, you know, more urgency for for many Jews after the Holocaust, you know, they they saw that as a kind of confirmation of that. On the other side, you have Jews who were very sensitive to the charge of, as you mentioned, of dual loyalty and kind of accepted what the anti-Semites had said and said, you're right, there is this kind of inevitable contradiction um, between Judaism and between loyalty to the states um, and Judaism is the problem and we have to abandon Judaism and we have to, that's, you know, it's and that they can't be put together. So yes, of course you have both sides uh, of of the question.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, Rabbi Silver, do you wanna weigh in on this question generally?
1: Briefly, I would say that, look, um, there's no question that a fully religious outlook on the world whether it's let's say Judaism, there will be points of conflict or points of disagreement between that approach to the world and a uh, secular government, is, as as good as it may be, as humane as it may be, there will obviously be points of tension, points of conflict. Uh, and the charge to the charge of dual loyalty, I'm always suspicious of the charge. Let me ask you, how many how many charges of dual loyalty? have been uh, leveled against the Christians in, in, in this country. And there, there are some serious, something like abortion, which to me is purely, I mean, you can argue all sides of it. You can argue that life begins at conception. You can argue life begins only after birth. You can argue 10 different arguments. You can't prove any of them. It's, to me, it's purely arbitrary. So the idea of pushing the agenda to prevent abortions from from very early on in the pregnancy, to me, how does that accord with a secular government? Answer: It doesn't actually accord with it at all. I don't think people have accused Christians who, who are anti-abortion, strong advocates of anti-abortion, high do loyalty, because people have different opinions, and no two people think alike about all things. But fundamentally, there's a belief that these people are good citizens. They are constructed people within the state. So to me, the charge against dual loyalty against the Jews is often coming from a fundamental distrust of Jews that, by the very nature, they have loyalty they have disloyal. Wherever it's coming from, you know, they traitors betrayed us, killed our God, whatever it is. So I'm very suspicious of the of the charge. Having said that, as I mentioned before, and others have mentioned as well, that. You know, I think we have to be aware of the reality in which we live and no two countries are the same, and no two situations are the same. And we certainly have to be wary of that. And yes, we are told to be good citizens and to be constructive citizens. And for the most part, I think we have been, we the Jewish people in general. I would just add one point and that is that within certain segments of Jewish society, there's no question that there's the sense, at least the talk of it. Now, I'm gonna say they're not good citizens, overall but there's sometimes you hear some, some of the more rigidly orthodox circles they seem to talk about the non-jews as if we're living in uh, in uh, in poland in the uh, in the 20s and 30s you know what i mean or whatever the, uh, the united states of america is not you know europe of the middle ages and it's not it's, each place is different so the idea of throwing everything into one basket i think is very problematic and i think what's helpful is to think real realistically about where we are, uh, how we, how we, we are, have to be good citizens. And then they don't necessarily have to buy into Western culture with lock, stock and barrel. I don't think we should buy into it lock, stock and barrel because I think religion at certain points has its own markers and its own values which don't necessarily correlate with general secular values.
3: I just want to say one thing, just a little note. You said Christians aren't charged with dual loyalty, but I think to be more specific, Catholics were often charged with that by Protestants. Because that's just, who are you loyal to? The president or the Pope? Right? That, that, actually,
1: that actually supports my point. <laughs> <laughs> right.
3: Protestants go. are prejudiced against yes, uh, the Catholics. Uh, we didn't trust the Catholics.
1: <laughs> my point is coming from a place of distrust on one reason or another, for yeah. sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. A lot of interesting perspectives on that question. Um, we'll move now to a couple of questions from the audience, um, and again, feel free to continue sending them in. Uh, this is from Ruth Shane, uh, and I'll uh, I'll present the question like this: A uh, question: What what's the function of Galut, and also what's sort of its uh, time frame? Is it meant to be a temporary state, um, and uh, you know, sort of an aberration, something to be corrected, or is it really the next stage in the evolution of the Jewish mission, let's say that started, uh, you know, was posed to to uh, Avram by by God. And that ties into some of the questions before, um, you know, the question of how much, is there a mission here? How should you value uh, that role? But specifically the question of is uh, different views on is God meant to be temporary or sort of, you know, a, a, and is it an aberration or is it something that's really supposed to happen, part of the plan? And I'll connect that to a, another question someone asked, which is, if it is connected to the plan, why is there no explicit statement to that effect in the Torah? It doesn't sound like that, certainly. So that's that's the two-part question. Um, and um, yeah, does someone want to want to volunteer to jump in? If not, we'll. Well, well the Torah uh, we'll, does
1: speak about returning. It's explicit. Right, right. The, the Torah in the thirtieth chapter of Dvarim talks about exile. And then return to God and there's a process of return and God returns to you and you return to God and then God will bring you back to the land. Parsha HaTshuva we read before Rosh Hashanah every year and that's a very beautiful parsha. so it does speak of, of return as actually taking place at some point in time after a process of introspection etc. Uh, I think I would just add one small point and that is that in terms of sort of hastening this process there's already a dispute in the Talmud about hastening the process. And in, in more recent times, you know, disputes between and it's much more complicated in terms of Zionism, in terms of the some of the thinkers in the uh, so in the Orthodox, and not, not only the Orthodox world about, but in the Orthodox world it took the form of waiting for God to make to make this happen. We took, you know, the the, the various oaths, etc., not to do it ourselves. Are they still in place or not? So I think that it's a it's, there's been a disagreements about again hastening to what degree people are, can sort of can, can be uh, constructive in terms of history. I think that's a dispute. Uh, you know, to what degree we wait for the redemption and to what extent we are, we can make it happen. There's a, there is a uh, disagreement about that for sure. But as far as the Torah is concerned, it does speak about return. There's, there's, that's a partial there.
0: Right. And I guess to, to sort of reframe the question in light of that, um, if the Torah says there's supposed to be a return, um, how does one make the argument that the exile is positive? If it seems like you sinned, you, you, get, you get exiled, you're supposed to return, doesn't that make it harder to argue that uh, the period in exile is really part of the original divine plan, some important, important step forward? Um, so again, this is building on some of the questions before, but I think this question uh, from the audience is, is pushing on that point a little bit.
1: Right. So I said earlier that it's about learning from the exile. Right? It took the form of learning a sensitivity to the suffering of others. That's the immediate. I think the immediate lesson has to be learned from exile. Don't impose on the, you know what it, what it means to be a stranger or to be oppressed. But I think one can, I think bro- one does not have to, one can broaden that to say that exile is a place to learn many different things. That would just add one point that I think the places that in Jewish history are the most interesting places, let's say in, in medieval Jewish history, it's got to be Provence. Provence is between the Spanish uh, school and the, and the, and the French German. And in Provence, they're coming together, the, wor- the worlds are colliding, and that makes for very interesting outcomes. It's where the Rambam's philosophy takes hold, for example. It's translated there. And the, this this it, it, it's a turbulent world. It's a world of ideas. And when, I, when ideas come into, you know, into contact with, with opposing ideas, I think it's, it's very exciting. Good things come out of that. It tends to be we learn new things. So I think the idea of exile optimally, you know, leaving aside that often it's just terribly oppressive and destructive, but if the exile of certain times in history, certain points in history can be highly educational and can deepen our own understanding of, uh, of, uh, of uh, our own tradition. I think that's the potentially the positive side of exile. Great, uh, additional just perspectives, saying,
3: yeah. Yeah, I just say, in terms of the you know biblical sources, the way many people looked, uh, many thinkers looked to was you know, famously Isaiah, the light into the nation. So, if, you know, there's kind of statements in the Bible which seem to imply that, um, maybe a more positive attitude towards, towards exile, but. You know, if you there are thinkers, if you look especially like the reform, the radical reform thinkers in the eight, in the nineteenth, and the early twentieth century, who did believe there was no reason to return, that this was a kind of ethnocentric idea, that was based on a kind of cultic view of Judaism, reestablishing the sacrifices, and that um, that the diaspora was part of the divine plan, and that there was no terminus to it. (laughs) <laughs> that this was this was what the function of Jews. Jews are supposed to be a priest unto a, a, you know a, 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 a kingdom of priests, and that meant being a kingdom of priests among the nations. Uh, but the more traditional um, and orthodox thinkers rejected that. Even if they thought there was a, a, a positive view, um, positive value to the exile, they still believe that at the end of time there will be return, but it's kind of put outside of history. So
2: I would just add that I think one of the interesting questions when it comes to, um, again, the ancient world is whether diaspora is a place or whether it's an internal state of being. Now, for sure, in the Second Temple period, it's a place, but one of the interesting things that you find in in the rabbinic period is that Galut is actually an internal state And so you can be in the land of Israel, you're in Galut, right? Galut is a time period and we have different eras of Galut. That is really developed in the rabbinic period. But I think that the rabbis make it clear that as a temporal state of being, not just a a spatial one, um, we have to view it as temporary because we're working in the framework of time. And so it's not just about being in a certain place and we're here, we're not there. This is a problem. What is God trying to tell us? But as people living in a continuum of time, we are awaiting the redemption from the state of being. Now, of course, there are Jews throughout the past two millennia who reject the idea that diaspora is a negative place. But it's interesting to think about what the rabbis were trying to tell us by transforming it into a state of being. Um, and And I do think that when we talk about if we could homogenize, you know, if we could like make broad generalizations, I do think that um, there is this traditional rabbinic idea that Galut, as a time period, is temporary, and that we're required to expect a redemption. It might be in the distant future; it might not be tomorrow. But the redemption uh, is going to come, and, and we have to we have to expect it. We have to anticipate it. We have to think with that idea.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, and that actually leads into or ties into the question I was going to ask next, which is what does it mean to identify as a diaspora Jew? So as Dr. Sikvis just said, it's about a mindset on certain accounts, how one views oneself, um, but uh, maybe if the other panelists have, have a quick thought, because we're, we're, we're nearing the end of our time, maybe a, a couple of sentences about what it might mean to identify as a diaspora Jew in, in that mindset, um, uh, as beyond just the fact that one lives outside the land of Israel.
1: I just wanted to add to what, um, what, uh, what Dr. Simkovich said, which is that in the beginning of the book of Shmuel, when God calls, summons Shmuel in chapter three, all the language over there is the language of, of Moshe. It's the language of the burning bush. The lights have gone out. There's no light. Moshe, Shmuel, Shmuel. And the point is he's sleeping in the Holy of Holies. The point of the book of Shmuel is that they take the exodus from Egypt, not as a historical event of leaving Egypt, they take it as a being in a place where God is distant, God is absent. And then Samuel is another Moses, basically. So the book of Shmuel, we don't even have to go to the rabbis. The book of Shmuel is already saying that exile is a state of being. And you could be in the land of Israel, you could be in the temple, you could be in the Holy of Holies. Mm. And it's about a kind of religious ascent and a, and a religious understanding and the and, and kind of recommitment. So I think that, you know, that idea that was expressed can be found already in the, uh, in the, in the text. And I would just say one last point know, which is that um, the idea of even no matter where you are, say you live in present day Israel, but the idea that our history has been one of exile and we have a lot to learn, the formative texts, the formative teachings, formative music, all takes place in exile. It takes place in exile for any number of reasons, including suffering, often out of suffering comes very profound thought, very profound expression, and that we are all connected, and we should be connected to this past, and we shouldn't reject the past. I think one of the mistakes of the early Zionists was to try to eliminate, obliterate uh, the past, and I think that in present-day Israel over the last several years, there's an attempt to reconnect to the past, which I think is very positive. So. Again, I think that one can see exile, it's, it's a reality, it's been a reality, but I also think it becomes an idea and to analyze you know, the, what it has been in terms of the positive side of it. It's part of the covenantal, it's part of what we've learned from it, what the teachings that emerge from, from exile and emerge from suffering, those teachings can be our guides as we, as we move forward.
0: Great, uh, Dr. Ghalib, do you have one sentence on what it means to identify as a diaspora Jew?
3: I don't know if I have one sentence about that. Uh, I, I, I had a kind of very interesting text chain about the situation in Ukraine um, with a couple of friends. And the question was, well, how does is Israel relating to the situation in Ukraine? And one, uh, one of the friends was really outraged that Israel isn't supporting Ukraine. More strongly, um, and another friend was thought, well, you know, you know, it's very easy to criticize Israel from Hawaii. It's very easy to criticize Israel when you're not having your rockets fall on you. Um, but I kind of, as I was kind of reflecting on that, I thought there's kind of really kind of two different perspectives, at some level, um, about Judaism and its nature, and it's kind of not just a question of of geography um, and kind of, cause I think when you look at many of the early Zionists, you see that there's a kind of people like Herzl, a very pessimistic view of humanity. They basically see the world as a place of a kind of Hobbesian war of all against all. It's just a place of danger. And Jews are, unless Jews can protect themselves, they're they're doomed. And you have to have a, a place for Jews to, um, to a, a homeland, a, a nation state, and so from that kind of perspective, Israel is kind of fundamentally about protecting Jewish lives. That's the that's the most important dimension of the state of Israel. Not to say humanitarian concerns are not important, but that they take a, clearly a kind of second place. And I think that was kind of more my friend who is responding. Um, but the but for many diaspora Jews, they see um, they see Judaism as very different. They see it as. A kind of fundamental task, a humanitarian task to humanity, um, as an ethical imperative, and of course, saving Jewish lives is part of that. Um, but for many diaspora Jews, that it's not automatic that Jewish lives always take priority over, you know, the lives of other peoples. And it's a kind of a question, you know, and do you have to sometimes weigh this. And I think there's kind of two very different perspectives on. Um, you know, on, on on Judaism and Jewish life.
0: Okay, I, I wanted to thank all of our panelists uh, for their presentations and discussion on this topic. I think we all learned a lot about the theme of diaspora in Jewish thought, different perspectives on it, its relation to the Megillah, its relation to Purim. Uh, so th- and thank you all for joining us. Everyone's, of course, invited to uh, join all our other Grisha classes. And uh, I wanted to end by wishing everyone a very, happy uh, uh, Purim, whether you're celebrating in Israel or in the diaspora. Thank you all.